You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 147. This week I would like to thank Tony, Kyle, Deb, and Keith for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes like our current set of episodes on the medical side of the conflict. You can head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more information. Last episode, we discussed the start of the Arab revolt in the Hejaz, modern-day Saudi Arabia. And this week, we will follow that revolt to its end, or at least until its stopping point, until the British began advancing out of Egypt later in the war. After we wrap up that story for the moment, we will take a deeper dive into the life of the man named T.E. Lawrence, who you probably know as Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence would become one of the most famous people from the First World War, especially after the release of the critically acclaimed movie in 1962. We will close out the episode with a quick overview of some of the changes in the British and French governments in late 1916, and how they would have a substantial impact on how both countries pursued the war in the Middle East, and what they hoped to gain from its conclusion. As always, if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or concerns, shoot me an email at historyofthegreatwar at outlook.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Now, last week, I asked for questions for a question and answer episode at some point this year, and many of you responded, thank you. But I'm still looking for more questions in what might actually be two episodes of question and answer, so if you have any more, please let me know. Sharif Hussein had launched his revolt in early June 1916, and while this represented a shift away from the Ottomans, it did not create an insurmountable rift. Even while his revolt was ongoing, Hussein always kept communication lines back to Istanbul and to the Young Turks open. This was obviously an attempt to hedge his bets, just in case he needed to move over to the Ottoman side at some point in the future, just in case. In these conversations, Hussein kept his same basic set of demands, more power and autonomy within the empire, and a hereditary title. 
The British were not initially aware of these conversations, but their estimations of Hussein and their hopes for the revolt began to drop quite rapidly. Members of the Arab Bureau began to drop some very negative comments in their communications, like David Hogarth, who had questioned Hussein's intentions. Quote, it is obvious that the king regards Arab unity as synonymous with his own kingship. Or Ronald Storrs, who would say of Hussein that, quote, his pretensions border on tragicomic. Even while their belief in the revolt had collapsed, the British still felt that they had to support it as far as possible, even if they now believed that it might fail. These were the same people who had so strongly pushed for British to support Hussein in the first place, so they would have to admit that they were wrong, or blame something else, if they wanted to try and stop supporting the revolt. So they did still support it, but they also started to push the blame to Hussein for its seeming failure. Back with the revolt, there were already some serious problems. While Mecca had been captured, a critical target, Medina would be far more difficult to bring under their control. The Ottoman troops in Medina were fully prepared to defend the city, and even felt that they were strong enough to launch an attack towards Mecca. The decision to attack out of Medina was driven by more than just military reasons, but also religious ones. The pilgrimage season would begin in early October, and it would look very good for the Ottomans if they controlled the holy city of Mecca before that season began. For Hussein, the situation was looking quite grim. There simply were not enough men under his command to achieve the necessary objectives. The British also could not just send him more troops. This was because the fighting was occurring around the holiest cities in Islam, which caused the Indian government, who ruled over millions of Islamic citizens, to make it very clear to the British government that sending infidel troops into the Hejaz to help the fighting could have serious repercussions, not just in the Middle East, but in India and the world. The only possible choice was to try and find Arab volunteers who were willing to be sent, but that would take time, and that was something that the revolt was very short of. The French were able to lend some assistance quicker than the British. In September, the French agreed to send a military expedition to help the revolt, and this unit would be made up entirely of Islamic soldiers. These troops would be acceptable to Hussein, his men, and Muslims all around the world. The unit would be led by Lieutenant Colonel Edouard Bermond, who would arrive in the port of Jeddah on September 20th. This military expedition would never be large, with their numbers never reaching more than a thousand men, but they provided much-needed military experience and expertise. They were able to help train and equip the men that Hussein and his sons led, which made them more effective. There was one problem that they could not resolve, and that was how to make up for the large numerical disadvantage that the men of the revolt would be forced to fight under. The strength of the revolt would soon be tested. The Ottoman forces did not get moving as soon as they had hoped, but by late fall 1916 they began their advance. They moved out of Medina and surprised Hussein's troops, causing them to quickly break and retreat. They fell back to the village of Yambu, near the coast, where they would try and defend once again. Here they would be assisted by five ships of the Royal Navy, and while these ships would be helpful, they were not the reason that the Arab troops stopped the Ottoman attack. By this point, the Ottoman army was hundreds of miles from its base in Medina, hundreds of miles that were constantly being harassed by Bedouin raiders. This meant that when they reached the village of Yambu, they were a spent force, and since they could not make any more easy progress, their only option was to turn back to Medina. They were pursued by Hussein's sons and their troops, and they put the city under siege. They could not actually attack the city. 
they did not have enough men to do that. But at this point, they were at least powerful enough to keep the Ottomans contained within Medina for now. With the situation somewhat stabilized, the British once again began to consider sending troops. After evaluating the situation, they began to realize that the number of men required was not going to be small. The numbers floating around the Arab Bureau at this point were in the range of 15,000 troops. This time it would be T.E. Lawrence, recently arrived in Egypt, who would advise against this action. He was especially concerned about the fact that Hussein was not willing to let the British land Christian troops on the Hejaz, and so any landing would be against his wishes. He would say that, quote, if the British, with or without the approval of the Sharif, disembarked an armed force powerful enough to take possessions of the areas around where they landed and organize a position there, the Arabs would, I am convinced, say we are betrayed and scatter to their tents, end quote. Along with local problems, Lawrence was also concerned about how such a move would look on a global scale, saying that the appearance of British troops so near the holy cities might antagonize the Muslim world and even the Arabs it was intended to secure. As an alternative approach, Lawrence suggested that the British simply pump more gold into the region through Hussein, gold that he could use to hire more Bedouin soldiers. After considering all of this information, the British decided not to send more troops, and with this decision the revolt went somewhat dormant. Capturing and holding Medina, and having the people of Medina join the revolt, was almost a requirement to be able to continue its spread and to have a larger effect on the war. Medina was on the line of advance out of Mecca and into the rest of the Ottoman Empire. With it still in Ottoman hands, the revolt was bottled up to the south. And so the revolt just hung out for a bit. It would be some time before they would be involved at the war again, and only after the British had advanced out of Egypt, freeing the Arabs to move north and join the British forces, a conversation for a later episode. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.
The opinions of the British diplomats in Cairo would see a very sharp shift from optimism to pessimism about the revolt in the six months after it began. This can be seen in the Arab Bulletin, which was an informational printing that was distributed to those within the Arab Bureau, but also to high-ranking politicians and military leaders from India to London. This was a relatively exclusive club, with only about 26 copies of each issue printed. This bulletin was often published multiple times per week to try and keep everybody up to speed on events. In its very first issue, there were already some concerns voiced by Lawrence himself about how the Arabs would hold together for the revolt, especially if and when things got difficult. By issue number six, the Arabs and their soldiering ability was already being deeply questioned. Quote, they are presumably tribesmen only, and they are all untrained and have no artillery or machine guns. Their preference is for the showy side of war, and it will be difficult to hold them together for any length of time unless pay and rations are attractive. By early February 1917, when the 41st issue was released, the revolt was already entirely written off. Quote, the prospect of Arabia united under either the king of the Hejaz or anyone else seems very remote. The Arab cause is evidently a very weak cement in the peninsula, dislike of the Turk is stronger, and a desire to stand well with us is perhaps stronger still. End quote. The director of the Arab Bureau, David Hogarth, would, in late, 1970, late May 1917, in a writing he considered a review of the first year of the revolt, write it off as a complete failure. The best that he hoped for was that they would hold their place and distract some Ottoman units. While much of this discussion revolved around how the revolt had completely failed, by early 1917 it was actually somewhat stable. The Ottomans were not in a position to push them back, and the British were more than happy to kick a few million pounds worth of gold to them occasionally. Remember, that's pound sterling, not the unit of measure of a pound. The British and their money-naming schemes. Very confusing. By 1917, a few million pounds sterling here and there was basically a rounding error in terms of total cost of the war, so it did not bother the British too much to ship some to the Hejaz to keep their little pet project going occasionally. Really quick, before we move on to Lawrence of Arabia, I think a quick overview of why the Ottomans did not have the strength to push back against the revolt is in order. Some of this will be touched on in later episodes, but to understand why the Ottomans in the Arabian Peninsula were so weak at this point in the war, it's important to understand how many directions the Ottoman military was being pulled in by this point. They had lost Baghdad in August 1916, which pushed them out of most of Mesopotamia. Then there were troops sent off to the second Suez Offensive, which occurred right before the start of the revolt, and these troops were beaten back by the British and had to retreat. Then there were Ottoman troops sent to reinforce the Caucasus Front, as it buckled under the pressure of the Russians. Then there was also an expedition launched into Azerbaijan. On this expedition, the Russian troops would retreat, pulling the Ottoman units deeper into the territory, where they would then stay for months. Finally, in late 1916, the Ottomans had sent 30,000 troops to help the conquest of Romania, which we discussed briefly in our Romanian episodes. All of this greatly geographically divergent objectives pushed the already stretched Ottoman army to the breaking point, and the Arab revolt, comfortably bottled up south of Medina, would also be so low on the priorities list that it would just never get the resources that it needed. We shift now to discussing a man who would begin the war as a young junior lieutenant with the name Thomas Edward Lawrence. Lawrence would eventually become something of a legend, made even more famous by the movie starring Peter O'Toole, which was released in 1962. 
What he would become is, of course, not where he would begin. And before the war, Lawrence was an Oxford student who had traveled throughout Syria and Palestine to study the old castles that had been constructed during the Crusades. Through these travels, he would create his thesis, which would later be published and is still available for free on the internet at archive.org. These travels would give him some familiarity with the region and its history, which would play a role in getting him into the Middle East during the war. When the war began, Lawrence was 28 years old, and he joined the war office where he was put to work creating maps in London, after he was turned down for army service due to his small size. By September 1916, Lawrence was in Cairo, thanks to connections with David Hogarth, the head of the Arab Bureau, who he had worked with before the war. Through this connection with Hogarth, he had been transferred to Cairo as a translator and given the rank of second lieutenant. While at the Arab Bureau, Lawrence was a relatively low-ranking individual. He was able to create a friendship with Ronald Storrs, though, and it was through this friendship that Lawrence found his way to the Hejaz. Storrs was going to meet the leaders of the Arab Revolt and decided to take Lawrence with him, which apparently was not a hard thing to make happen because Lawrence was not very popular in the Cairo office. Lawrence and Storrs would arrive at Jeddah on the coast and meet with one of Hussein's sons, Abdullah. Lawrence was not greatly impressed with Abdullah, but apparently Abdullah was quite impressed with Lawrence. This meant that Lawrence was allowed to continue into the interior to meet with another son of Hussein, Faisal. This meeting would take place south of Medina, and it would be the start of a friendship that would last for years. Lawrence thought very highly of Faisal, and believed that he should be the leader of the Arab troops. After this meeting, Lawrence returned to Cairo with a proposal. He believed that instead of launching a large military campaign and fighting in the traditional style, the Arab revolt should double down on a guerrilla campaign. This would have the benefits of sapping Ottoman strength while also playing to the strengths of the Arab and Bedouin soldiers. Lawrence also wanted Faisal to lead this effort, and he wanted to be sent back as a liaison to arrange necessary British support. When Lawrence proposed this to the British officials in Cairo, they were initially very open to the idea. This was around the time that they were estimating that it would take 15,000 British troops to secure a traditional military victory, and the Arab Bureau just did not have the kind of sway to arrange that number. So Lawrence found it easy to secure support for anything with any hope of success that didn't require a whole lot of men. Lawrence would leave Cairo again in November 1916, and he would be with the revolt by early December. For the rest of the war, Lawrence would work beside Faisal and the Arabs, and he would be responsible for turning British gold into greater Arab support. Lawrence would describe the tactics of the revolt like this. Our tactics were always tip and run, not pushes but strokes. We never tried to maintain or improve an advantage, but to move off again somewhere else. We used the smallest force in the quickest time at the furthest place. If the action had continued till the enemy had changed his dispositions to resist it, we would have been breaking the spirit of our fundamental rule of denying him targets. Lawrence and the Arabs would change tactics, and instead of trying to capture Medina directly, they would instead move around it and threaten the rail connection between Medina and the rest of the Ottoman Empire. They would do this, and with their constant raiding, the Ottoman commanders in Medina would have to use troops to defend their railroad, which they were not successful at, and which would eventually reduce their supplies to the point of impotence. Lawrence would also put a heavy emphasis on expanding the base of support for the revolt among the people. He believed that it was critical to the success of the revolt, and these efforts would pay off. It allowed the Arabs to have exact information about the makeup and positioning of the Ottoman troops whenever they set up for an attack. 
It also allowed for Lawrence and Faisal to feed the Ottomans false information about their strengths and intentions. This campaign, which Lawrence played a role in leading, would not be war-winning in and of itself, but it proved to be greatly valuable to the British effort as a whole. With never more than a few thousand Arabs, they would occupy 20,000 Ottoman troops at times. These troops would be distracted and pinned down south of Damascus, but east of the critical Palestinian campaign being launched by Allenby and the British in mid-1918. It is likely that if these troops were available to the Ottoman defenders in the Palestine, that the British campaign there would have been less successful than it would actually be. Over the course of his time with the Arabs, Lawrence became quite good friends with him. In his correspondence, he would begin to use the words like we to describe them, not them or they. He included himself as the part of the group. He believed that the Arabs should be free after the war, but he also knew that the British were deceiving them. He knew that the British and French were hoping to give the Arabs, at best, nominal autonomy in the post-war world. Even with this knowledge, Lawrence would continue his fight for them, even at Versailles, which we will discuss in a later episode. This was just a brief overview of Lawrence. There are obviously much deeper histories out there, and this is a topic that I may revisit in greater detail in the future. To close out today, we shift our focus out of the Middle East for the moment, and instead over to Paris and London. With British and French support so critical to the revolt, and British military campaigns critical to removing the Ottomans from the war, changes in the leadership of the two countries really would have a meaningful impact on the Middle East. In London, that meaningful change would come in late 1916, when Lloyd George would replace Asquith as Prime Minister. Asquith had been at least somewhat against large territorial acquisitions in the East, but Lloyd George fully supported them. He was not a fan of the Ottomans, and believed that breaking up their empire, with the British receiving their share, was the best path forward. These views which soon clashed with Wilson's after the United States entered the war. Both of the leaders wanted the Ottoman Empire broken up, but where Wilson wanted self-determination, Lloyd George wanted something very close to colonialism. Where Wilson wanted peace without annexations, Lloyd George would push for the complete opposite, but he would not do so openly or alone. During the last two years of the war, Lloyd George was, if nothing else, a very smooth political operator. He would shroud his true intentions from the Americans, telling them what they wanted to hear, and save his play until after the war. There would also be changes on the French side, with the appointment of Premier Clemenceau in November 1917. Clemenceau really hated Germany. Like, really, really hated Germany. As victory seemed to loom, he would push for greater and greater punishment for Germany. As for the Middle East, he didn't care quite as much. Up to his appointment, the French had been fixated on Syria, but Clemenceau was not nearly as concerned about territorial acquisitions in the Middle East. Would he take them? Sure, because he knew that there were some in the French government who greatly desired them. However, he would gladly trade them all away to the British, as long as they supported the strongest possible peace terms against Germany. This view left the British clearly in the driver's seat in the Middle East. It's impossible to discuss the Middle East during and after the war, and especially when discussing the Western view of the area, without a word about Zionism. Zionism, at its simplest, is the idea that the Jewish people needed a country of their own. This movement would change when Theodor Herzl, an Austrian, pushed for a Jewish state in 1896. 
There had been discussions of finding a more secure place for the Jews somewhere in the world for over a century. These discussions came from a variety of places, from the Jewish settlements in Palestine, to British statesman Benjamin Disraeli, to Moses Hess. Herzl's contribution to the movement was the idea that the goal of the Jewish people should be to push forward a political movement to gain support of the governments around Europe for the creation of a Jewish state, which would be created by political maneuverings. Herzl would die in 1904, far before the Zionist movement would see its goals fulfilled. There would be many influential Zionists in British politics both before and during the war. The most important of these was none other than Lloyd George himself. The specific location of this desired homeland was not always the future location of Israel, and instead there were several different areas considered, from Uganda to South America. However, the movement would slowly, and then much more rapidly after Herzl's death, begin to coalesce around Palestine as being the most appropriate place. The movement would eventually culminate in the Balfour Declaration of 1917. In this declaration, issued officially by the British government, they would have the following statement. Quote, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate this achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. End quote. This made the creation of a Jewish state, which decades later would become Israel, an official policy of the British government. And this policy would have consequences not just during the war, not just immediately after, but for us over a century later. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode as we continue our discussion about the events in the Middle East during the First World War. Yeah.